Chapter 6 begins with a warning. A warning to the church at Corinth. A warning to us today. Chapter 6 begins with a warning about apathy in the church and the coming hardships of following Jesus. Apathy in the church, coming hardships. Let's start chapter 6, verse 1. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is when? Now. Today is the day of salvation. It's interesting to me that Paul begins this sixth chapter by saying, I beg you not to do something that will come natural. Do not accept this marvelous gift of God's salvation, his kindness, and then ignore the gift, ignore the responsibility of receiving the gift. Our partner, our co-worker, Paul, is begging us not to do something because he knows the serious nature of this event. Do not accept the marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore the gift. In other words, he has offered us this incredible gift, but don't ignore the value and the purpose and the calling of the gift that we have received. Let's look at another English translation on this same verse. I want to read from the... Uh, the, another translation, the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, Working together with him, we also appeal to you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. And now is the day of salvation. Is it possible to receive this gift from God and then ignore it? It's a question. And I know there would be some debate on this issue. Is it even possible to receive this gift from God and then to ignore it? Some people would say no. Uh, Paul obviously believes it is possible because he's begging us not to do it. Is it possible to receive this gift of God in vain? Having received this gift of his abiding presence and all the purpose that comes with that, and yet never use the gift to do what you received the gift to do. The message of the gospel is always, listen carefully, the message of the gospel is always, regardless of what generation you're born in, the message of the gospel is always now. Not later. Now. For whatever generation you've been born, whether it's the Apostle Paul's in the first century church or ours in the 21st century, the message of the gospel is the same. Now. Now. There are people perishing now. The message of the gospel is now. The right time is now. Today. This moment. For this church, the right time is now. Not something we're going to do someday. It's now. To ignore the now is the great tragedy of many in the church. Example, individually and corporately, but the great tragedy would be to, I'll serve God when. I'll serve God when a certain set of circumstances make me feel like it's the right time. Paul begs the church, don't receive this marvelous gift and miss the opportunity, the window. But what is the window now? 
I had a guy recently tell me that he was wondering when the Lord would give him the gifts so that he could begin serving him through those gifts. As if somehow or another he didn't have yet what he needed. Listen, let's make it clear. If you have received Christ, he is sufficiently equipping you for everything that you will experience in the now, in the moment. Let me reveal a truth that has changed my life. When you encounter the Word of God, I remember coming upon this years ago when I was doing that Experiencing God study by Henry Blackaby. If you want to have an encounter with God, if you read the Old Testament and say, wow, wouldn't it be nice if God communicated with us the way He did in the time of Moses or sending angels or if you want an encounter with God, if you sincerely would like to have an encounter with God, open the Bible. Start reading. Turn everything else off and open the Bible and start reading. Because when you encounter the Word of God, you have encountered God. Quit waiting for something. When you read the Word, seeking God's will, God's way, legitimately looking for the Word to reveal everything you need in the now. He'll present that to you. Quit waiting for something. Now is the time to deal with what you have now. Do you know how the book of Hebrews opens? And, and I do this for this reason. A lot of people have this idea that we can't encounter God today. Yeah, Moses went on the mountaintop and he encountered God and Moses did this and you know angels used to come and do this and that and whatever. But you know what? That doesn't happen anymore. So how does God today in the church age reveal his calling, reveal his plan, his purpose to us? Hebrews 1. This is how the Hebrew writer opens the book. Verse 1. Long ago. God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, by the way, let me tell you, the church age is the countdown of the final days. But now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. Does that mean that there will be an audible voice from Jesus telling you, hey, now's the right time, go, do that. Let me read it again. Long ago, in the past, in the Old Testament, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through what? The prophets. But now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. Do you think it's an accident that Jesus' name in the gospel of John is the word? Do you think it's an accident in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns, his name, his title is the word? If you would like to have an encounter with God, why don't you have an encounter with the Word? Because in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son, the Word. Don't wait for easy. You see, that's another excuse. That's another way to, to waste the time that we are given and the gift that we've received. Don't wait for easy. Don't wait for circumstances. Don't wait for your stars to line up. Now, Paul then describes the real world. The real world. Paul had to live in the real world. Paul then describes the real world of following Jesus. Here we go, verse 3. 
We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us. And no one will find fault with our ministry. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardship and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us, by our sincere love. All of this testimony of Paul is what? For something that he's going to do one day in the future? No. All of this testimony of Paul was all applied in the current moment in which he walked with Christ. All of this testimony is in the real world. We need to deal, church, right now today, we need to deal with the real world reality. The real world that we live in. Not what might be, not what you might hope will be, but what is right now. The church needs to deal with what the world is right now. Next verse, verse 7. We faithfully preach the truth. What? What's the answer? We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. Now, I want to spend some time on this verse. We preach the truth. Now, it's interesting to me that, that the Word of God, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers in various ways and methods, but in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. His Son's name is the Word. You have a copy of the Word. Paul says, we faithfully preach the truth. The truth is the Word. And then he uses this analogy. He says, we preach we use weapons of righteousness in our right hand. Now, our right hand, typically in, in mankind, the right hand is the hand of strength. I'm right-handed. It is my strongest hand. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. He sits at the power, the extension of the power of God is the right hand of God, right? But what's on the left? And we use our left hand in defense. So it's like the right hand would hold a sword and the left hand would hold a shield. The right hand would hold the sword. What does the Bible call the sword? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we hold up the Word of God in our right hand and we take a shield with our left hand, understanding that there will be opposition. There is an adversary. It is a war. Now read it again. We faithfully preach the truth, understanding that not everyone's going to accept the truth, but we preach the truth. This reminds me of an Old Testament story when God called Nehemiah. He called Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem after 70 years of Babylonian captivity and rebuild the walls. The exiles, the Jews that had, most of them probably died uh, that had left Jerusalem, that remembered Jerusalem. 
and a new generation is being born. And they're now returning from Babylon, Iraq, going back to Jerusalem after 70 years. And Nehemiah is going to lead them because God's called him to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The exiles began to return. And I want you to think about it. They began to return with great excitement. They were going home to their homeland, Jewish people who have been away for 70 plus years, and now they're going to go home. They're going to rebuild Jerusalem. There's a hope in their life. God is with them. God is leading them. And it says they began with great enthusiasm until opposition came. Sounds a whole lot like the church. There's usually great enthusiasm until opposition comes. Let me read it to you. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. Now, now you got to understand the story. Here the exiles are returning from their captivity in another land to the north. And now the locals, the locals see that Jerusalem's being rebuilt without them. And Sanballat, that's the guy's name, and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites, the locals, they don't like it. Opposition begins. Opposition against whom? God has dispatched Nehemiah and the exiles to rebuild the walls, and there is opposition. So I want you to think the work of God and the word of God has commissioned Nehemiah and the people of God to rebuild the walls, and there is opposition. They begin rebuilding the walls with great enthusiasm until opposition arises. Yes, let me say it to the church today. There will be opposition to the work of God, to the Word of God. That's why we need to use both hands. Righteousness in your right hand. The offensive weapon in your right hand. What is the offensive weapon? The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. You introduce the Word of God into the unbelieving world. And it will look like a weapon to them. They won't like it. The shield of faith is in our left hand. But notice Nehemiah's team. Go down to verse 15. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them and their plans, we all returned to our work on the wall. From, but from then on, only half my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. Now here's the interesting part. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. They're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And there is opposition, but they're under the word of God to complete the work of God. And there's opposition, so they don't stop. You know what they start doing? They start using both hands. They hold a weapon in one and construction tools in the other. Look at verse 18. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. 
the trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. That's how they built the wall. You know how they completed the call of God in their generation, in their now? They had a weapon in one hand and the work of God in the other. Yes, there will be opposition to the work of God and the Word of God. That's why we need to use both hands. I want to say it one more time. In our right hand, in our, in our hand that is the strongest, we hold what? The sword of the Spirit. It is an offensive weapon. It is what you use to move forward, not just to move backwards to protect yourself. No, that's the other hand. That's the shield. This is the offensive weapon. It is the Word of God. We hold it up. We hold our sword up. But in our left hand, you need to understand that because there is opposition, we have a shield. The shield in the Bible is called the shield of faith. We need to use both hands. Now, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us. In other words, if God tells Nehemiah to go and rebuild the wall, it really doesn't matter whether there's going to be opposition or not. You go build the wall. If God calls the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel, it really doesn't matter if the world likes it or not. We go into all the world and preach the gospel. If he says in the last days he will speak only through his son, his son is the word, and the son will represent the word by the power of the Holy Spirit, then if there's opposition, does that mean we shrink back? No, we move forward. Back to verse 8 again. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest but they call us imposters. We are ignored even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Who would dare? Listen, this all goes back to the first verse we read tonight. Who would dare receive this gift and ignore it or receive this gift in vain? What gift? What gift? The knowledge of God. The Word of God. The ways and the work of God. Who would receive this gift and ignore it? Who would receive it in vain with no purpose? And you know how you can tell? Because the gift is always now. The gift is always relevant to that moment in which you're receiving the gift. If you're waiting for the opposition to die down, your now will never come. If you're waiting for a time when the, Ameri when the church in America will be received again as friendly, without opposition, your time will never come. You will never know what now means. Is this calling easy? No. Was it easy for Nehemiah to travel for all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem and stand against all the local opposition and rebuild the wall? No, it, was, it wasn't easy. There was great opposition. There had to have been times when he was intimidated, just like there's times when we're intimidated. Paul describes his life. It was, it was suffering. It was hard. But is it worth it? Yes. Let's go to verse 10. Our heartache, our hearts ache, excuse me, 
but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Do you see the paradox? When you read these stories of Paul's description of a life of being a Jesus follower, do you see the paradox? Here's what he says, we honor them and they despise us. We are absolutely honest and bear absolute truth and they call us imposters. We are ignored, but we're well known. We walk on the edge of death, but we are permanently attached to life itself. We are poor and give away what we have, and yet we have inexhaustible wealth. See the paradox? We own nothing, yet we have everything. Do you see why it's sometimes really hard to recruit people to, to follow Christ? On the outside looking in, it looks like the value is not there because you don't see the treasure. The treasure is life itself. Go to verse 11. Oh, dear Corinthian friends, we have spoken honestly with you and our hearts are open to you. There is no lack of love on our part, but you have withheld your love from us. I am asking you to respond as if you were my own children. Open your hearts to us. The Holy Spirit cries out through Paul for unity in the body of Christ. Let me tell you, that same Holy Spirit call is real today. The Holy Spirit calls for unity in the body of Christ, that we would be of one mind, of one spirit, of one thought. And that thought is to honor our Lord and our Savior. At one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism. The church is a called and gifted people who use their now for the glory of God. Let me put it this way. The church are those who are filled with the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. They know the Word. They understand the Word. The Word is written on their heart. And they understand that now our purpose in life is to please God, not ourselves. When do you do that? When will you do that? Now, who would receive this gift in vain? Who would receive this marvelous gift of the knowledge of the Lord and then ignore the gift? The church doesn't ignore the gift. The church, not the true church, the church doesn't ignore the gift and the church doesn't ignore the now, but it uses it under the authority of the head. The head of the church is not the preacher. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. We understand that our calling, everything is under his lordship, under his head, under Christ himself. Look at how the Apostle Paul describes it when he writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. Let's go to Ephesians 4 verse 1. Therefore I a prisoner for serving the Lord, Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Now let's stop, just stop there for a moment. Paul is saying, I beg you. That's the same word he used in, in, in this text to, tonight. I beg you. To do what? To lead a life worthy of the calling. I, I look around the room tonight and I wonder, are you leading your life Living your life equal to the calling. 
And I want you to put that not in future tense, but in present tense. Now. Now. For you have been called by God. Are there future assignments in your life? More than likely, yes. I don't know how long we'll be here. But what about the ones that you intersected with this week? What about now? Verse 2, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for your future. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift. Listen carefully. However, he has given us. There's one God, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord over all through which he will do all of his work. But what? But, but. He says he has given each of us something individually. A special gift through the generosity of Christ. Every one of us is unique. Every one of us have received a special gift from God through the generosity of Christ. Verse 8, that is why the scriptures say when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Would any of you say tonight this, when I receive this gift, I'll, I'll start to use it. Would you be willing to stand before God and say, Lord, if you will reveal, and when you reveal that gift to me, in the now, in the present, what I have received now, today, I will begin to use now, today. Are you willing to do that? What if that takes you out of your comfort zone? What if it takes you out of your current vocation, your current location, your current worldview. If you have received Christ, you have received this gift. And I'm going to ask you a question. Would you ignore that gift? What would be the consequences of ignoring that gift? Are there consequences? Would you keep that gift to yourself or share that gift with others? What gift? What, what gift specifically? The knowledge of the kingdom of God. The knowledge of the Word of God. I've used this example over the years. What if you, in your possession, had the cure to death itself? Would you not share the cure to death with someone who's dying? Who wouldn't share the cure to death with someone who's dying? We have been called by God to receive and bear this gift, the gift of His glory. We will never be able to carry out this calling of God by becoming alike or united to the world. Now here comes the next interesting point. We will never be able to carry out this right now calling of God while we belong to the world. We will have to become separate. In fact, this, is, this will be the judgment of the world. Listen carefully. 
You see, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world and he offered the world a gift. But the world has not received the gift. In fact, the world did actually receive the gift. Jesus came to the world, but the world ignored the gift. Are you with me? The gift was given to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave the world the gift. The gift was his son on the cross, the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ. But let's be honest. Overall, the world has ignored the gift. Now, I understand that the unbelieving world would ignore the gift. What I don't understand is that the believing church would then ignore the gift. You see, the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross is the gift of eternal life. Eternal life is the cure to death. It works every time. Eternal life always cures death. And that gift is given through faith. And to those who believe... They have received this gift. And if you believe there was a cure to death, I honestly believe that you would share that cure to death with somebody besides yourself. In fact, this will be the judgment of the world. The world, what? The judgment of the world. Let me read it again. Let me, I'll try to memorize it. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He, he didn't send his Son to condemn the world. He gave his Son as a gift to the world, but most of the world will ignore the gift. That is the judgment. In fact, if you go on down in John chapter 3, it says, and this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men have loved darkness more than the light, for their deeds are evil. This is the verdict. This is the judgment of mankind. They ignored the gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit has come to the earth. And for most, he, the Spirit, has come in vain. Because they refused to receive him, they ignored him. Now let's go back to 2 Corinthians 6, go to verse 14. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. This is New Living Translation. It's pretty clear, modern English. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. Don't be yoked together, and one of the other more Older translations, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Don't be teamed up with unbelievers. Why? How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? Now, now what's the context? The context is here. We've been given a gift, but the utilization and the power of that gift will never be experienced while you're part of the world that's turned their back on God. We have to be separate for this gift to be experienced and utilized. You have to come apart from the world. That's why he says in the same context, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live in darkness? 
What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out. This is not difficult to understand. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you and I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So let's be practical. Let's do a practical application for believers in the church. Should a believer marry an unbeliever? No. Should a believer date an unbeliever? No. No. Why? Do you believe the Bible to be the Word of God? Do you believe the way to God is through the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit? Why would you receive the gift? Okay, let's consider the Word of God the gift. Why would you receive the gift and ignore it? Why would you receive the gift in vain? That's what it means to ignore it. He gives us this counsel. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. What is righteousness? Don't be a, a partner with unrighteousness. Someone who believes different than you do. Let's go a little deeper. Should you be a business partner with an unbeliever? No. I've come to this conclusion on this issue. You know why the world has always had a hatred for the Jews? Let, let me illustrate this situation. For years, I have studied the Old Testament, and I've noticed something since even written the time of Abraham. The Jews have always lived in the world, but not of the world. In fact, when the Jews got in trouble when, is when they became part of the world when they became like the world. But do you know why the world has traditionally had disdain for the Jewish people? Because the Jewish people always kept themselves separate. The church was designed to do in the New Testament what the Jews were supposed to do in the Old Testament, to receive and reflect the glory of God. In the Old Testament, the Jews would receive the word of God. The, the law came to the Jewish people to reveal that there is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to the world, they could reveal that God. But to reveal that God, they had to be separate from the world. And now the church age has begun, and our calling is to come out from among the people. Yes, we still live among the people, we don't move off into communes or communities away from the people. Now, we're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We have to be among the people, but separate from the people. And what happened when the Jews did that? They became hated by the world. The church will be hated by the world. Can you yoke together two people that are pulling in two different directions? Now, I'll admit that we don't live in a yoke age. 
In fact, I barely grew up in a horse yoke, animal yoke age to where you would hook up two horses under a yoke and they would have to pull together, even though I do, I am old enough that I remember people actually doing that on the farm. So I'll ask again, can you yoke together two people that are pulling in two different directions and walking in two different destinations? Is it possible, is it even possible to yoke together, to connect together two people when one of them is actually walking in an opposite direction than the other? No. Can a marriage be successful when one has their back to God and the other one faces God? No. Let me read 2 Corinthians 6.14 from the NIV. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, I know I've used this illustration, but it's one of my favorite pictures of this present spiritual reality. If you go into a very dark room and you turn on the light, what happens? What happens? When you turn on the light, the darkness leaves. When you turn on the light, the darkness leaves. You know what, you know what the church has been called to do in these last days? Turn on the light. Don't ignore the light. Turn the light on. When you turn the light on, darkness leaves. John chapter 3 reveals that the world which is in the darkness will not enjoy you flipping the light switch. But turning the light on is the cure to death. So turn the light on and tell the truth. Our calling is to turn on the light and tell the truth. What fellowship can light have with darkness? There is no fellowship. When you turn on the light... Darkness leaves. So let's flip that over. What happens if we ignore the light? What if we receive this marvelous gift and yet we ignore it? What if we receive this marvelous gift and we received in vain because we never turned it on? Then darkness remains. There's no fellowship with the light if only the darkness remains. That means the light has not entered the darkness and darkness will forever remain. What har- verse 15, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does the believer have in common with an unbeliever? But some would say, and I, I know this, some would say that we must go into the entire world and share the gift. We can't remain separate. Now, I've heard the lines, I understand the context. Yes, 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 the church cannot move off by ourselves. We cannot disconnect ourselves from the world. In fact, the calling of the Great Commission is what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Can we do both? Can you be in the world but not of the world? Can you be living in the world but not belong to the world? Yes, 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 by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only can we, we must. Believers are being led by the Holy Spirit through the wilderness on our way to the promised land of God's presence. I want you to visualize right now, however old you are, right now you are experiencing your now. The Apostle Paul in the first century experienced his time. His now has come and his now has gone. Right now we are experiencing our now. 
we, like the children of Israel of old, are crossing through the wilderness on our way to the promised land. We will encounter people along the way. And it's my experience that God is appointing people to, who are in the darkness to encounter this light. By His grace, by His mercy, He will put us together. He will put us, His Holy Spirit in us will direct us to encounter people who happen to be walking in the darkness as our light approaches. When we encounter them, we have been called to display the gifts of God and the glory of God through our lives that reflect the grace and peace of God himself. Whether the people in darkness know it or not, their soul's crying out for this grace and peace. We don't change directions when we meet people in the wilderness and turn back to Egypt. You see, they're walking in the wilderness toward Egypt. We're walking in the wilderness toward the promised land. We're all in the wilderness, but we're not heading the same direction. Now, do you think it would be wise while we encounter people in the wilderness to follow them to Egypt, to tell them about the promised land? No. While we encounter those walking in the darkness facing toward Egypt, which is a picture of bondage and darkness, we tell them about the promised land and the light that is in front of us. And we ask them to join us in the journey. We don't change directions. We don't become like the world to try to influence the world. If we become like the world, we'll find ourselves back in Egypt. We don't become like unbelievers to reveal the glory of God. Truth is the only thing that will ever reveal the glory of God. And the cross of Christ is the only truth that will lead us into the promised land of God's presence. Let, let me make this point clear. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will come to the Father except through me. Now, the very fact that I said those words, those words came from the Bible. I believe the Bible to be the truth that Jesus is referring to. In fact, without the Bible, I wouldn't know that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to the promised land. He is the truth that there is a promised land, and he is the life in the promised land. And if you go to Egypt, if you think you're going to find the promised land in Egypt, that's the wrong way. Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul makes this very clear. He says, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. Notice what he says. Because, may I boast, if there's anything I'm excited about, if there's any purpose overriding theme of my life, I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. That God loved the world so much that he sent a gift of eternal life to planet earth. 
Believe and receive this gift, but don't do it in vain. You must believe and receive this gift by believing, receiving, and experiencing this gift. Experiencing this gift is to share the gift. If you had the cure to death, don't tell me you wouldn't tell somebody that you don't have to die. He says, because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. Paul didn't belong to the world. You know why? Because Paul wasn't walking toward Egypt. Paul was walking toward the promised land. We've been called not to walk toward Egypt. We don't become like Christ by entering Egypt. In fact, Jesus came so that we could get out of Egypt and move to the promised land. But because of that cross, my interest in the world has been crucified. There's nothing in Egypt for me. I don't want to go to Egypt. But he says this, and the world's interest in me has also died. The world now doesn't find me interesting either. In Christ, the world is not interested in me. And I'm not interested in the world, but I do remain on this fallen world so that I might display the saving grace and mercy of my Lord to others. I will and you will encounter others in the wilderness, and they might be, probably are, walking toward Egypt the wrong way into the darkness. Jesus lived in our world for some 33 years. And you know what he never did? He never became like the world. He never belonged to the world. What's the problem with the world? What's the problem with Egypt? It belongs to Satan. Satan is the god of this present world. He knows his days are short, but he is right now the god of this present world. Jesus never became sinful to win over sinners. Did he communicate with sinners yes did he allow his light to come near the sinners the darkness yes yes we're the light of the world too and he's inside of us but he didn't become sinful to win over sinners he didn't move to egypt to try to influence egypt he didn't become darkness so that he might affect darkness with light no he just shined the light Jesus never went along with the world so that the people would like him. No. That's why they hated him. John 15, verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Why does the world hate Jesus? Why? Why did the world hate the Jews? Because he did not belong to the world. The Jews did not belong to the world. The church is not supposed to belong to the world. If the world hates you, remember it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. I chose you, church people, to come out of the world, to be different than the world. We belong to Christ. We do not belong to this world. We do not belong to this temporary God named Satan. Even though right now, I admit, the Word clearly communicates that He is right now the present God of this world. But we don't belong to Him. We belong to Christ. We are separate. We've been called by God out of this world. Out of the darkness. Out of Egypt. 
We follow the one that chose to come out of the world and now the world hates us because we belong to him. Finally, let's look one more time at how this chapter begins, which has really been the discussion tonight. Back to verse 1, chapter 6. As God's partners, as God's partners, that's the church, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness. Do not, Paul says, I beg you. What, what more serious word can he use? I beg you not to receive this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore the gift. For God says at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is what? Now. Today is the day of salvation. Right now in the room, we are experiencing today. Right now is our now. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you will awaken the church from this slumber. That we would know that this is our day. This is our time. You have called us. You have given us this marvelous gift. And may we not receive this gift in vain. May we never receive this gift and then ignore the gift. But may we share the gift. May we receive the gift and share the gift with those who do not know the gift of life itself. I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that you would bless us with your abiding presence. And then, Father, we would take this time that we have in a way that's urgent, that we would not waste or ignore or experience the time we have in vain. But we would make the most of every opportunity and allow your Holy Spirit to operate freely and in power among your church while we wait for our King. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.